All right, if you'll open your Bible with me to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 22. We're going to um, bounce around just a little bit um, tonight, um, because what we're going to do is we're going to um, talk about the, the story in the Gospel of Luke of Peter's betrayal. But the way we're going to approach it, instead of coming back to it, we're going to talk about the passage where the prophecy, um, Jesus' prediction of, of Peter's betrayal is. And then we're going to skip down to the actual betrayal and talk about it instead of reconnecting to it in a couple of weeks when we actually hit that passage. So our reading tonight is Luke 22, verses 31 through 34, and then skipping down and reading 54 through 62 as well. So in verse 31, Jesus is speaking. He says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me three until you deny three times that you know me. Now skipping down to verse 54. Then they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house, and Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man was also with him. But he denied it, saying, woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, you also are are, uh, one of them. But Peter said, man, I am not. And after an interval, interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter, and Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, again, we thank you for this time. God, we thank you for your word as we open it. Um, We thank you for the message of your word. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you that as we open your word, we see uh, you and your character uh, and and your kindness and graciousness to us in the gospel um, displayed both in the Old Testament uh, and in the New Testament. God foretold and prefigured and foreshadowed in the Old Testament and brought to um, fruition in the New Testament. God, we thank you that through your word, we know you, uh, that that is the uh, point of our lives. It is the reason why we were created. Um, God, is, is to be in relationship with you, to, to be in fellowship with you, to live as your children and, and be about your business. And so, God, we thank you for your word and ask that you would use it to shape your people um, today. God, we thank you again for for our community. Uh, we thank you for the gospel believing churches of Blunt County. God, we specifically pray for for sister churches like 
Redeemer Presbyterian, Smoky Mountain Presbyterian. God, we thank you for our sending church, um, Pleasant Grove Baptist. God, we thank you for other sister Baptist churches in our community like Everett Hills um, and uh, uh, Dotson Memorial and Beach Grove Baptist and First Baptist Alcoa. God, um, all churches that we have friends and brothers and sisters in Christ at that we are connected to by the gospel. God, we ask your uh, power to work in, in those churches and in the communities that they serve and represent. God, that you would draw people to um, all the churches in Blount County that each week uh, preach your gospel. God, declare your word um, and call people uh, to repent of sin and to trust in Jesus Christ. God, we ask that, um, God, that you would bring a, a spirit of revival into our community. God, that we would cooperate with each other as, as congregations and that we would encourage each other. God, that we would recognize that it is not each other that we are competing against, um, but that we are competing against uh, the world and the draws of, of sin and flesh and Satan um, and the deception and the lies that he presents to the world. Um, God, that we and the, our fellow churches are, are allies in this, in this, uh, task and in this war and in this calling. God, help us to, um, God, pray for them, to encourage them and to, to serve alongside them. Father, as we, as we read your word, again, we pray that you would use it to shape your people. We thank you for the gospel. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. So today we're talking about, um, among other things, kind of a, this this idea of confidence is what do we place our confidence in? When we read this story, we we notice something um, specific. We notice Peter, particularly at the beginning of the passage, being very confident in the things he says, and that yet by the time we have ended the passage, um, that confidence seems to have been uh, all for naught. And so what that's the, the, the main thing that I want to talk about is where does your confidence lie? What do you place your confidence in? And, and how do we see maybe, maybe similar things that are working in our own hearts and own lives going on in this passage, um, as we've seen? Because here is the reality and, and maybe the, the beginning thing that, that we say, uh, is that our self-confidence is empty. All right. If we are placing confidence in ourselves, then we are going to be, we, we might call it Laodicean in our confidence. So if you remember in the, in the book of Revelation and the, the seven letters to the seven churches, one of those letters goes to the church at Laodicea and they are warned in chapter four, verse 17 of Revelation. It says, for you say, I am rich. I have prospered. I need nothing, but not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Okay. We have a similar thing going on in our hearts many times. We seem to have more confidence in our own strength and our own abilities, uh, than we should while all the while we are actually wretched and poor, um, and ill-equipped for the challenges that we face. One of the little 
uh, odd little sayings that I picked up from my grandparents. You know, one of those sort of country colloquial kind of sayings is we would sit down to dinner and we'd be eating and, you know, I'd, I'd put a whole lot of food on my plate and then end up not eating at all. And my, my grandmother would say, well, I guess your eyes were bigger than your stomach, right? You've probably, um, heard that kind of phrase. There's, there's something like that in a spiritual sense going on in the life of Peter here, right? His eyes spiritually, um, are bigger than his stomach. His, the boasts that he is making and the expectations that he has for his own strength um, far outstretch what he is actually able to accomplish. I tried to find the quote, and I couldn't find it anywhere. It was a, it was a study I'd read at one point. It was talking about Americans, and it was talking about uh, our, our test results, and it was going through any number of sort of standardized testing or whatever, and it was basically saying that you know, it was giving the numbers that how Americans fared on math tests and science tests and these different things, and it said, you know, we were this far down the list in various categories, and, and the study said, but there was one category that we were number one in. There was one category that involved this testing and questioning that we were number one in, and that was confidence in how well we did on it. So they interviewed people after the test and they said, well, how do you think you did? And Americans by and large said, I think I did pretty good. Right. Um, and then in reality, they, they, they were in somewhere in the middle of the pack. Okay. And so I mean, there's just a little picture there, right. Of saying, man, there is, there's a false sense of, of, of confidence that we have and it's two sided. Okay. It's two sided oftentimes in our heart. And we see a picture of that in Peter here in this passage. So on the one side, it's an overestimation of our own convictions. It's an overestimation of our convictions. So we'll come back to Jesus' words at the beginning of the passage in verse 31 and 32 in just a minute. But let's look at Peter's assessment of his own steadfastness, his own commitment to Jesus in verse 33. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you to both prison and to death. Of course, Jesus says, before the rooster crows in the morning, you'll have denied me three times. When we read the account in the other gospels, man, Peter even in some ways doubles down on it even heavier. In Matthew's gospel, he says, he says, even if all fall away because of you, I will never fall away, right? Even if every single person in the world were to reject you, Jesus, I wouldn't. I would be the one who stuck through with you. Now, again, before we're critical of Peter, we should probably consider our own words, our own ideas, our own thoughts, our own convictions, because it is easy and common to overstate our convictions. All right? I think that's part of the thing with our social media world. Man, these people make these bold and sort of over-the-top statements about things online and the reason is, is because there's not really any consequences for those things, right? You don't have to live up to them. You don't have to do anything because you can just make these bold, brash kind of statements and there's no accountability for it. Most of us, though, have nothing like an actual track record that would be in keeping with such bold statements, right? Most of us have not lived in such a way that that, that would back those kind of statements up. So I was thinking about there's a there's a story you guys know that I'm a, a fan of Dietrich Bonhoeffer and and uh, his book Life Together has been one of the most influential books in terms of my own spiritual development and stuff like that. So Bonhoeffer had a situation and you may vaguely be or or well uh, aware of his situation, but he was a, a Lutheran pastor, World War II, 
Nazi stuff started happening in Germany. He said, man, I don't want to be a part of this. The country's been taken over by these things. Um, I, I'm not going to be able to be free to, to worship and leave and serve and all these things the way I should. So I'm going to, I'm going to take my chance and I'm going to get out of town. And he had friends in the theological world. In fact, he had friends already in the United States who said, we've got a job for you over here. We've got a seminary that you can come, a college that you can come and teach at already. You just hop on a boat and get over here. You won't have to worry about that stuff anymore, and you'll be fine over here, okay? And you can you can, you can can continue to seek God and write and, and preach and teach and do the things you want to do, okay? But when Bonhoeffer got to the United States— it wasn't long before he started realizing in his own heart that he had all these bold things to say about what was wrong with Germany and the things that were going wrong and what Christians ought to do and how they ought to respond and how they ought to be faithful in that context. He had all these bold things to say, and yet he realized, and I have stepped out, and I've saved myself and walked away from all those things and come to the United States to save my own life. And at that point, he realized, I can't do this anymore. I have to go back. And so he he left the, the the potentiality of the job that he had in the United States, and he went back to Germany and began to be functioning in the underground church there, in some capacities, even in the the the, the underground movement to overthrow Hitler, and then eventually he was arrested and and executed. Okay, but those, that's the kind of thing. Is is there something there that says, hey? Uh, here's a situation of a man whose convictions, he recognized that his convictions didn't line up with the way he had actually lived out his life. And so in turn, he decided, I am going to you know, live up to those convictions, okay? Many of us, though, are just not in a position even where we have had opportunities to live out those convictions so boldly. Now, so then why do we make those? Why do we say those things in those ways, right? Obviously, we want to be faithful people. But there's there's something more there. There's a, there's a pride that is behind some of those things. I think in a sense it's it was it's a it's a form of spiritual virtue signaling, even before we knew what that term meant over the last few years. Right? We want everyone to know, particularly Jesus, particularly the members of our church, or, or uh, the people who are around us. We want everybody to know that we're on the right side. We want to have the right opinions. We want to have the right convictions. And yet again, the Bible informs us. That the mind is often willing, the heart is willing, but the flesh is weak. The heart is deceptive, right? It, it, it lies to us. We make bold claims with our mouth and then don't live up to them in our lives. And so part of the problem is we overestimate our own conviction and what it will cost us. So the reverse side of that is we underestimate our own cowardice in many situations. So we read that story that we just went through where Peter follows. He goes to the, the court of Caiaphas. And then over the course of the evening, he is confronted by a servant girl and then a, a second person and then a third person. Each time he denies that he even knows Christ. Vehemently says, I don't even know who that guy is. I'm not one of his followers. I don't know what you're talking about. You've probably heard someone make a comment um, I know I have in terms of sermons and stuff like that over the years about talking about this passage and saying, man, all it took to break Peter's conviction was this little girl, this servant girl. Um, all she had to do was confront him and, and all of his bravado, um, was, was deflated. Now, the truth is, is that's, that's a little unfair. 
It's probably, it's certainly unkind to Peter, but it's also unfair to him because the larger consequences of that moment were, were much bigger than just a servant girl, you know, uh, calling you out. The, probably many of you have seen the, the movie The Passion of the Christ. We don't know for sure that the events happen that way, but it does give this interesting depiction where Jesus is there amongst the people who have been gathered for this, this sham trial, this mock trial, and they are they are calling, they're bloodthirsty, and they are calling for Jesus' you know, life, and and there's just this frenzy where they want him destroyed. And the crowd in the in the scene, at least the way they depict it, the crowd starts to get worked up in this, and they want him dead too, and they're screaming and you know, mad about these things. Um, and then in the context of that, somebody says, Hey, aren't you one of his followers too? And, and you can imagine being in that situation thinking these people are going to tear us apart any second, right? Like they could literally, the, the crowd could tear us to pieces physically. Um, and in that moment, in the, the dire circumstances of that moment to say, and I just got to get out of here, right? I've got to find some way to, to get out of here. I, I think probably the reality is this, while we might not want to admit it, we would do the same thing in many cases. Some commentators also point to the fact that, that Peter, man, is as much as his he is seen in a negative light in these passages, at least he followed. Okay? Everybody else in the Garden of Gethsemane abandoned Christ and, and dispersed. Peter, at least, it, it, it says in this passage that he followed from a distance, but at least he followed. Maybe it's even the case that he was following for the intention of trying to keep his promise, that he would go to prison or even to death for Jesus, right? Because if you remember, he pulls the sword, right? In the, in the Garden of Gethsemane, he pulls his sword and is ready to fight these guards to protect Jesus' life. And Jesus says, stop, that's not what we're doing here. And so maybe Peter is like, well, I'm going to follow and maybe I'll have a chance to get him out. Maybe I'll have a chance to to save him or free him or something. There's no way we can know, obviously. But at least he followed. We actually find out in John's gospel that John did too. John actually seems to have had some uh, closer connection to Caiaphas and, and his family. And so he was actually allowed into the court in, in some manner where Peter was sort of stuck outside. But but th there are things here to look at Peter and say, maybe we should be a little more uh, kind in our appraisal of the situa situation. But nevertheless, it can't be avoided that when presented with the actual cost, of either aligning his life with Jesus and suffering the consequences, he chose safety. He chose his own life over allegiance to Christ. Now, again, if we're honest, if we don't estimate our own convictions and, and behavior, um, we have done the same kind of thing in much lesser situations. How many times have we been afraid to speak up in a crowd where the consequences were nothing like death and being torn to pieces by a mob, right? We were at a family dinner. We were at school. We were at work. We knew that people would be offended. We knew that people would maybe push back on it. And so we just decided to keep quiet in those circumstances. The reality is, is that um, we are all fickle and weak in any number of ways. But here's the crazy thing. Jesus knows that. Jesus knew it about Peter. He knew what his weaknesses were. He foretold them, right? He predicted them. He knows your weaknesses. He knows my weaknesses. 
Now, again, that's not a reason for us to take those things lightly. It's not a reason for us to take our sin or faithlessness less seriously. But it is a reminder where our confidence should ultimately lie. The reality is, is if any of us are placing our confidence in our own selves, then we've got a problem. It's not ourselves that we should have confidence in, but Jesus Christ. In his empowering mercy, in his empowering love to us. I think his words to Peter express sort of the heart and intention that he has for his people in general. And and we notice different aspects of it when we look at the way Jesus talks to him in that prediction. So look back there again at verse 31. We see at least three ways that we should have confidence in Christ alone. One is for our protection. We should have confidence in Christ alone for our protection. He begins the passage, verse 31, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. So Satan, the Bible tells us, roams around like a devouring lion. He is there to maim. He is there to destroy the children of God. That idea of sifting you like wheat, right? That process of tearing uh, the chaff being separated and and uh, district, right? You're, you're, there's this just this mess that is going on there. Satan has demanded, Jesus says, to sift you like wheat. I think probably the case is true of us as well. Satan has demanded of Christ to sift us like wheat to destroy our lives, to come in and work in any way he can to hurt and maim and destroy us. But notice something. Always remember this too. And it's highlighted in this passage. It's highlighted in the story of Job as well. Satan has neither the authority nor the power to do anything to you outside of the sovereignty of God. So again, he demands something of Christ in this passage, but notice he still has to come before God and ask for it. He cannot simply act of his own volition and do as he sees fit. Even his opposition to God and God's people is something that God allows of him. Not something that he is just doing on his own, right? We have this wrong-headed idea sometimes where we almost think that we live in a dualistic universe where you have good God on one side and evil Satan on one side and the two of them are fighting back and forth somehow for dominance. That's not right. There's only God. All power and authority belong to him. And God has allowed Satan to do what he does in the short run. Now, again, we might say, well, good grief, why would God ever allow that? And the answer is because the I don't I can't answer that question, right? In the mind of God, how he has worked these things out, his plans, there's no way that we can answer that fully. God's sovereignty is a mystery to us when it comes to those things. But remember the story of Job. What happens in the story of Job? The exact same thing. Satan comes before God and says, hey, do I have, I want to persecute Job. And it has to be God who says, I will allow this. There is one certainty and that nothing happens outside of God's sovereign will. 
Jesus protects Peter because he says, Satan is demanded to have you. And I said, no. Satan attacks us and Jesus protects us. And if he allows trials in our lives, if he allows us to go through difficult things, then what we do is we trust that Jesus is good, wise, gracious, trustworthy, and that he would not allow us to go through these things if it were not part of his greater plan that we can't see yet. So our confidence in our own protection from Satan is found in Christ alone. But not just our protection, but in our perseverance to the end as well. Because what does it say in verse 32? Jesus says, Satan came and demanded to have you, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. I don't know about you, but I have crises of faith sometimes. I have moments in my life where I think to myself, am I strong enough to see this thing through to the end? Am I faithful enough to see this thing through to the end? And here's the crazy thing. The voice that comes back into me says, no, you are not strong enough to see this thing to the end. But Christ is. Christ is capable. He is strong enough to see this thing to the end. Christ, we see in this passage, is even now binding himself to Peter, and he is binding himself to us through his prayers, through his concern for you. Even now, it is Christ who is accomplishing our perseverance. So you may have gotten up this morning and been like, man, I'm having a pretty good day. I'm walking in faith and victory, okay? But why? Why are you walking in faith and victory? It's not because you're awesome. It's because Christ is. And he is working in you. He is even now mediating for you before the Father and holding you to himself. I, my heart, is prone to wander. It is prone to leave the God I love, as the song says. But Christ is faithful not to let me fail. And he has prayed for Peter to not fail, and he has prayed for me to not fail, and he is praying for you to not fail. The reality is, is what separates us right this minute from hell and utter desolation is only the prayers and the power and the mercy of Jesus Christ. Now again, we read a passage like this and we go, yeah, 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 Ash, that sounds really good. Except Peter did fail, right? Um, he did fall. Um, Jesus seems like he didn't protect him. He didn't keep him faithful. How do we understand that? Well, hold on to it for just a second and we'll come back. Because we also notice this, Christ provides not only for our perseverance, not only for our pet protection, but he provides for our repentance as well. What does it say in verse 32? He says to Peter, and when you have turned again. Jesus doesn't say if you turn again and come back to me. He says when you turn and come back. 
And again, not because he trusts in Peter, not because he's like, eh, Peter's a good dude. He'll realize he did something wrong and come back eventually. That's not what's going on. It's because he knows the plans that he already has for Peter. The Bible makes pretty clear in other places that even repentance, even turning from our sin and sorrow is a gift of God, right? It doesn't find its origin within us. Every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights, the Bible says. And repentance is one of those good gifts. There is a way, and again, I'm not saying that that takes away our will or our volition because all those things are connected into this. But it is it is God that grants us repentance. And God already knows what he's going to do with Peter. He already knows that he's going to call him back. He already knows that this is what's going to take place. And so we should pray that God would grant us repentance because the truth is we don't want to repent oftentimes. We don't even feel like we should. Sometimes we, I mean, you probably do this. I know I do. You sit there and sort of argue with God a little bit. You've done something and you go, well, here's, I was justified in doing that. I know it wasn't great, God, and I know technically it goes against your word, but there, here's all the reasons why it wasn't that. It's not like it's a, you just do that, right? Until finally you just go, I'm just being stupid. I just need to repent. And if I can't repent, then I need to say, God, will you grant me repentance? Will you help me to repent? We should pray for our own hearts in repentance. We should pray for other people to repent, right? Instead of sitting there and arguing and building up your argument against somebody, say, gosh, Lord, if you would just help them to repent, man, these things would be so much better. In the end, all of our confidence for protection and perseverance and even our ability to repent it's found in Christ alone. Our hope is in Christ alone in all these things. And so here's a cool thing about all this passage. And I'm going to be honest again, this is a little bit of spiritual speculation because I don't know for sure that this is exactly what happened in this moment, but I have a feeling like it is. Because it goes back to that question, well, why, if Jesus has promised to protect and provide and, and persevere, why did he let this happen to Peter? Like, why didn't Peter just stay faithful? Why does Peter go through these things? In a sense, Peter's betrayal is highlighted and even exacerbated by the prophecy. It could be one thing if Peter had just sort of been like, oh yeah, I just messed up and failed. But Jesus told him beforehand he was going to do it. And yet we notice one more thing that Jesus promises in this passage. Or at the second or maybe the third piece of 32. Jesus says, when all is said and done, When you've denied me, and then you've come back again, what does he ask of Peter? There's a command there. He says, I want you to strengthen your brothers. So how can Peter, who is exhibited in this passage as the weakest of the disciples in many ways, right? How can he possibly strengthen anybody? Because it's true that that from probably at least a human standpoint, Peter is very much what we might call a natural leader, okay? Um, he puts himself out front a lot. Uh, he makes these bold statements. He takes big stands, okay? He is also quick-tempered. He is reactionary. He is impulsive. And those are characteristics that, all, that can also explode leadership, right? They can make a mess of leadership. I had a professor in, in seminary once that was was talking about leadership, and he said, For better or for worse, you know a person is a leader if when they look back, 
there are people following them. Okay? That's sort of a simplistic thing. That doesn't mean they're a good leader or they're taking the people in a good direction. But if you look behind and people are following you, well, then you're a leader. Seems like Peter's kind of like that, right? Like Peter sort of steps out in front and says, follow me, I know the way. And then everybody, all the other disciples go, yeah, let's just follow Peter. Okay? I don't think that's what Jesus is pointing to. I don't think Jesus is pointing towards Peter's natural, bold kind of character and leadership. Peter is called to lead, called to encourage his brothers in the future. But here's what I think it is. I think it's a function of the grace that he has shown in this moment. That is what creates the leadership that he shows in the future. And that's this is what I mean by that. You remember back in Luke chapter 7, uh, Jesus told a parable, and he said there was this certain money lender. And he had two debtors and one guy owed 500 denarii and the other one 50. But G, uh, but the, but the man, neither of the men could pay. So the man canceled both of the debts. And then he asks the Pharisee who they're having dinner with. He says, now, which one of those two guys do you think will love him the most? And the Pharisee, well, I guess the guy that had the bigger debt. And Jesus says, the people who have been forgiven of little, love little. But those who have been forgiven of much, love much. I think that's what's going on in this passage. I think Peter, and again, I can't see into his heart, but I wonder if his faithfulness in the future as a leader of the church, as an evangelist, as a missionary, as a apostle, as a church planter, right? And eventually as a martyr. I wonder if all those things aren't forged in this moment of grace that he has shown. Because what do we notice in that passage? There's a unique line that, that you don't see in the other accounts of this. It says, when, when Peter denies Jesus three times, the rooster crows, and then it says that the Lord looked at Peter, right? that the Lord made eye contact with Peter standing in the crowd. Again, we don't know what the layout of this building was. We're not exactly sure what's going on here. But in some way, Jesus is over here being accused and being put through this mock trial. Peter is uh, is away from him at some point and, and, and not right up close. But Peter denies Jesus three times, the rooster crows, and then across this crowded room across all these people who are yelling and calling for Jesus' death, Jesus makes eye contact with Peter somehow. And it says, he sees him, and he runs out and he weeps bitterly. Except here's the deal, man. I don't think in that moment he saw condemnation. I think when Jesus and Peter's eyes met in that moment, all of Peter's self-confidence, all of his pretension, all of that stuff is laid bare. As he looks in his Savior's eyes and recognizes his own betrayal, recognizes the, the depths to which he has fallen, he comes to grips with his own spiritual bankruptcy at that moment, with his own emptiness. And at that moment, he looks Jesus in the eyes, but again, instead of seeing condemnation, Instead of looking at Jesus and hearing Jesus' words saying, 
you're unfaithful, you're a betrayer, you will never be anything in my kingdom. Instead, what does he hear? He says, when you've turned back, strengthen your brothers. All right? He hears the mercy of Christ, even as he is looking into his eyes. He remembers Jesus' prediction that he was going to deny, and it has come to fruition. But he also remembers Jesus' promise of repentance, promise of the hope of reclamation, of being brought back into the fold, and the promise that he had a future in service to Jesus Christ. And so this is what I think. I think in that moment, it was that grace that leads to a whole different Peter. Okay? Doesn't mean Peter doesn't still continue to have some of the same characteristics he's had the whole time, right? We get to the book of Acts, we get to the letters of Paul, and we see that Peter in some ways keeps on being Peter. But at the same time, I think in that moment, he was shown such grace that when he was at his worst, when he was at the bottom, he saw that Jesus Christ loved him, showed him mercy, and still wanted him to be a part of his plans. The truth is, is I hope that we can all experience that too. I think the case is, is that if you were a follower of Jesus Christ in this room, you have experienced that. And yet also, I know that maybe we have not all have experienced it to the level that, G, that that Peter did, right? There's probably something that has happened in our lives where we have gone, yes, I am a sinner, and yes, I need a Savior. But sometimes I wonder if there's not still a point in our lives where we need to be broken, where we need to really see the depth of who we are. And, and, and please don't misunderstand me. This is not like that thing, you know, I don't know if you guys ever experienced this, but man, I was in college and and there'd be people who were out there living like hell or whatever. And, and they would say, you'd say, hey, man, why are you doing that? And they jokingly say, well, I'm working on my testimony, right? As if they were living in a godless way because they knew that, oh, man, I'm going to come back to Christ one day and I'm going to have this great story about how messed up I was, but, but Jesus brought me back. Man, that is not what we're talking about, right? Don't hear me go, oh, well, I haven't done enough bad things, so I should go out and really just give it all I've got and then come back and, and then I'll know the grace of Jesus. That's not what we're talking about. And yet, man, there's something, there's something that can happen where we are broken in our sin, right? Where we finally recognize the depths of, of how empty our hearts are, how broken we are in our own sin, but it's at that moment that we don't turn to despair and say, well, obviously Jesus would have never want to have anything to do with me. It's at that moment that we say, no, I must turn back to Jesus. And he is ready and waiting to receive me and welcome me back into his presence and into his service. So what I want to do is we're going to close. Um, Cheeto's going to come and lead us. Um, I'm... It's a weird thing to sort of say, man, I, I pray that we're all broken. I pray that Jesus breaks you one day. Um, maybe breaks you even more than you've already been broken. Um, I hope he brings you to a point in your life where you recognize that you are, the Greek word is tokos, that you are spiritually bankrupt, that you are beggarly poor, that you are empty of spiritual merit. And as you are emptied, that you can be filled with the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. So let's go to the Lord in prayer.
ask that he would work these things in our lives. Father God, the truth is, is that even that claim that I desire to be broken, that I desire other people to be broken in those ways, God, that is a bold and audacious claim, probably one that outstrips my convictions, because the truth is, is, man, I don't want to be broken. Uh, I don't want to go through... uh the difficulty, um, God, the the, the heart rending uh, agony um, that might include that, and yet at the same time, Lord, um, I believe that it is true, and so, God, you are good, you are wise. God, you know all things. You know where our hearts lie. You know what each of us needs. God, there are probably some of us that need to be broken. God, there are some of us that need to be mended and nurtured and lifted back up. Father, I will leave those things to you. In your will, you will know best how to minister to each of our hearts. But Lord, we ask that in all things... uh, we would be devoted to Jesus Christ, that we would know the mercy by which we have been saved, and that as we behold the goodness and grace that he has extended to us, God, that God, that you would change us and form us in his image and draw us close to him. We thank you. Father, we praise you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand and sing the closing song. So is now he is my strength, my song. Here in the 
Amen. Good to see you. Glad you're here this week. Um, as you're leaving, if you're interested in being part of the uh, Augustine's Confessions book study, um, if you can, you can either do two, one of two things. If you want to be a part of it, but you don't have cash or check on you this week, then you can write me a little IOU and give me the piece of paper and go ahead and take your book if you want to go ahead and start reading it. Um, otherwise, if you've got cash or a check, um, that'd be great. $10.00. Unless you've got a used copy, you won't find it for cheaper than that because we got a discount on when we ordered them and stuff. So, um, it's a, I don't, if, if you're not familiar with the book, so St. Augustine was a, uh, a bishop in Northern Africa at the fall of the Roman Empire. Um, his, his book Confessions is basically his autobiography. So a neat thing about the book is in terms of Western civilization, it was really sort of the first autobiography that anybody had ever written. Like it was this man, thinking about his own life and faith and the way he had come to Jesus Christ and giving an account of that. Um, but he walks through this long process of being a lost person and the things that were going on in his heart and mind and life, and then finally leading to his spiritual conversion, but seeing how God was at work in all of those things throughout the course of his life. And so it's a perfect, um, perfect kind of book for, for Lent. 
um, that season where we are thinking um, and introspectively and sort of, of, of about those issues as we lead towards um, the celebration of Easter. And so it's a great book. It's a classic. Um, if, if you've never read it, I would encourage you to, even if you can't be a part of this study this time around. But uh, but they are out there on the table, so you want to grab one before you um, leave. If you want to be a part of that, like I said, I, I didn't write down the date, but our first meeting is maybe in, say, three weeks. And then we'll we- meet again two weeks after that. And then I think the last meeting is on uh, Palm Sunday. So it'd be the weekend before Easter is the last of the meetings. So um, anyway, hope you have a great week. Um, uh, good to see you. Hear this benediction as you go. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. Turn his face towards you and give you peace. We'll see you next week. Mm-hmm. Speaking of.